who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. And simply climbs out. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for rejoining us. Uh, if you missed any of the last segment, uh, it was a fantastic interview with the Bulgarian investigative journalist uh, Diliana Gaitinieta uh, talking about the biological weapons uh, program or research program. It seems to be weaponized uh, in the former Soviet republics run by the Pentagon. She broke that story a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you missed any of the live uh, broadcast or you're just joining us now, you can go back and hear that on the archive after the show here on 21 Wire, but also on iTunes and other uh, podcasting platforms. Uh, and in a related uh, story, we'll continue on the theme of uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and specifically, we're going to talk about the chemical weapons controversy uh, in Syria. And our next guest uh, has done a fair bit of research on this topic and has also published some of his findings as well. Uh, he is a research affiliate with MIT uh, in Boston, and he's also a professor at Tokyo Tech. Uh, and his name is Subrata Gushroy, and he's joining us right now on the live link uh, here on the Sunday Wire. Hello, Subrata. Uh, hello, Mike. I'm the Patrick. Yes, I, I hope you're well, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Subrata this week. Um, now, you, you've published uh, an article recently, and it's really a follow-up of, of some of the previous work you've done. And specifically, we're talking about the, the big chemical weapons event that really, uh, really ramped up uh, the West's uh, sort of aggression with towards Syria. And we're talking about Eastern Ghouta, August 2013. Uh, and this, this was such an important uh, event in terms of uh, shaping Western U.S.-led policy against Syria, and and really to this day that that event is still quoted in so many reports and is seen as the basis of the continuation of sanctions against Syria, the continuation of uh, the the policy of regime change, let's say, uh, against Damascus uh, by the West. Uh, and you've you've come up with some some interesting findings, and you've raised some important points uh, in your recent report. But go ahead. Uh, and kind of exp share with us, you know, what your view, and, and first tell us to, again, for those who haven't heard this previous episode, we, we had you as a guest uh, before and haven't read your previous findings, uh, just give us a little background on, you know, what you discovered and you brought forth in terms of evidence presented uh, with regards to this chemical weapons attack or alleged attack, let's say, in eastern Ghouta uh, back in August of 2013. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, I was immediately uh, sort of, um, once the report uh, broke and um, uh, there was a lot of, of course, um, activity on the social media, Twitter, Facebook, and so forth about uh, this event in Gutown, August uh, 21st, uh, 2013, so it's five years ago, this is the anniversary actually of that 
And uh, we have come a full circle, uh, and I'll mention that in a minute. But in 2013, what struck me from those reports and the analysis that followed, that there was very little evidence that was corroborated. Uh, so nowadays, of course, with the um, uh, facilities of uh, editing videos and, and, and photos and so forth, one can make up stories that are probably even non-existent. But uh, just watching the video stream on Twitter, it was quite clear to me that a lot of it is was not authentic. But our analysis, particularly in the United States, uh, people who claim to be experts on chemical weapons and so forth, which are mostly U.S. intelligence agents who had participated in the um, uh, oversight of our efforts in Iraq at that time, our meaning the U.S. government's effort and the British government's efforts in Iraq in trying to find uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's the same people who formed this expert group on CNN and elsewhere on the New York Times and so forth, and, and, and some other people joined in. The first thing I'll point out that which I followed through in my second analysis, is that, uh, again, what was really striking is this death toll from the attack in Ghouta. So you have a situation there where the U.S. government came out three to four days after the attack that 1,400 uh, 29 um, or so people, including 500 or so children, are um, had 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 was were killed in that event. I mean, that's that the, the very precise nature of that information was very troubling. You know, in the in aftermath of a chemical attack, there is chaos and there's uh, um, a, a lot of people die before they get to the morgue. And if one looks at uh, um, uh, another chemical attack, which was in Halabja in Iraq in the, in, in 1988, that uh, one would have known that what, what it really means when you face a large-scale chemical attack on a civilian population. So I debunked a lot of this analysis, which were based on this death toll that the U.S. intelligence agencies put out, not corroborated to this date, and in fact, that number has become um, a, a, a fact now that every article on chemical attacks in Syria quotes that number, which the U.S. government first put out as a preliminary estimate that was supposed to evolve over time as they collected more intelligence about the death toll. Not Nothing happened about that. That number was just put out and stayed, and people just pick up in a good sort of in a... <clears throat> it's almost like uh, like Goebbels, Goebbels putting something out and repeating it, repeating it until it becomes fact. And I'm really challenging that particular uh, side of the media store stories uh, on the uh, uh, on the on the attack there, um, and this number about death toll and what happened to the to the uh, people uh, who have supposedly been attacked, then continued, you know, and in varying degrees in the later chemical attacks. The next big one was in Khan Shehun in the Idlib province in um, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, in four, 
2017, and then followed by the last one in Duma, which is an area that is very close to Ghouta. In fact, it is part of the Ghouta, the large Damascus suburb, where the first attack happened, and then they repeated it. And now this particular one, and we can go back and forth on this, but I, I should point out that in each of these cases, we had supposedly an independent investigation of these allegations of attack and this independent uh, uh, joint uh, commission set up by the United Nations with most experts from the um, Chemical Weapons Monitoring Agency, which is called the OPCW, which is the Organization for the um, uh, Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. They monitor people's compliance with the Chemical Weapons Convention. And uh, and these people form, and a lot of these people in the uh, investigations team are also former intelligence agents from the Western uh, uh, governments, uh, Finland, um, uh, uh, United States, France, and Britain. And, um, and, and their uh, reports, uh, starting from Gouda in 2013 to Duma, um, uh, or all, uh, uh, were, as I say, there's a, uh, in my current uh, article that the UN investigations were really botched and that they did not follow protocol. They just uh, went, went around with little uh, uh, collection of evidence and a lot of the evidence that were collected were actually by the so-called insurgents in, in Syria who provided them with this intelligence when, uh, are the samples, and then they took them to Turkey and stuff. So it's a very complex story that's been going on, and that's why people don't understand the complexities and especially the role of the, the United Nations, that it, the agency as OPCW, that it played in, in, in shaping the public opinion. Yeah, that's that's a really important point that you just finished on, which is, uh, and by the way, the OPCW uh, has just been given license in the recent months to attribute blame, which isn't actually wasn't part of their original remit, Subrata. They they were never uh, charged with attributing blame. In other words, uh, the the prosecution uh, sort of function of the organization was never really a part of the remit, and now it is. And I. I I tend to think, Subrata, that this is a political move, if anything, because if you if you then uh, turn the OPCW into a type of law enforcement agency and you're able to put your people throughout the organization, well, there is a big potential there for politicizing the investigations and also politicizing the blame attribution uh, as well. Uh, and so it's it's becoming a bigger problem. But but the main I think the main thing is uh, it, it just on the issue of the evidence. Um, how important is it in, when you're doing a investigation that the chain of custody issue with regards to samples? Um, this is actually uh, and this is something that doesn't get interrogated much in the media. They just say the UN filed a report. I saw an Al Jazeera presenter uh, shove this in the Iranian foreign minister's face uh, just a couple of days ago in New York. He said, this is a UN report, you know, and they've said that the OPCW as well has said that uh, Syria is using chemical weapons against their own people. What do you have to say about that, Mr. Iranian foreign minister? As if, uh, but no no real diligence is done to the provenance of of the blame or the charge uh, because there's no chain of custody. 
uh, with any of these these samples, or they're being handled by opposition. We, you don't know what what's been exchanged in the in the various middlemen in between where it's uh, where where these samples have actually made into the hands of the OPCW. Um, you know, h- how do you view that uh, from from your point of view as a neutral observer? Yeah, first of all, I mean, once uh, in in looking at each of these three specific uh, cases of the large-scale allegations of large-scale chemical attacks, the Ghouta, the Kanshehun, and, and Duma. In Ghouta in 2013, this was very interesting because the OPCW inspectors were already in Damascus when this alleged incident happened on the outskirts of Damascus. So there were, the team was already there they were investigating previous allegations of chemical use, primarily by the Syrian government, that the opposition was using chemical weapons. Because it, is, it isn't as, uh, as though the opposition had no access. And, and many press reports later on uh, showed that how the opposition used chemical weapons in Mosul and elsewhere, and 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 uh, and and certainly after Duma was liberated, one could see that their labs and stuff underground that they had the had the capacity. So UN team were waiting to get into Ghouta, and it took them about four days because the safety of this team was difficult to be guaranteed. The Ghouta whole area was occupied by the, by the jihadists. And so while the team was waiting, uh, they were blaming the Syrian government for not letting them in. Well, it wasn't the Syrian government, really. It is that the people who were controlling the area did not guarantee the safety first of the of the UN inspectors. Once they went in, they were completely guided, instructed where to go, what samples they could see. I mean, to my absolute surprise that here we are investigating the death of about allegedly 1,400 people and, and the investigation team did not make a single trip to a hospital or a morgue to see for themselves what has happened. I mean, that's just unbelievable that from a primary collection of evidence that you don't go to the hospital, you go to the morgue or whatever. So these insurgents were guiding them, taking them to places. And we know that in in my own opinion, in terms of how they staged this attack, which I believe they did, is and, and had the victims mostly in one local area, in in a room or maybe two rooms, I don't know, in one building. But then the inspectors were guided to these places and then there could they could collect a sample uh, from there. So we don't know who did the attack, but in the report, the UN inspection team uh, pretty much hinted that they found evidence that rockets were used to deliver sarin. And although in fine print in the same report, they say that evidence could have been, um, 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 you know, they're moving around stuff, rockets were placed here and there because that area was bombed for a long time. So there are all kinds of fragments of shrapnels of this and that and the ammunition. So 150 millimeter rounds and things like that. So they collected some of them 
And and then they said that, so the, this is how sarin got delivered. And ergo, who had the capacity of delivering those kinds of rockets? It's the Syrian government. So you're absolutely right. In, in, in the Ghouta report, they didn't directly accuse the government, but then they came to Khan Shehun, which was even worse in terms of evidence collection, because despite the many requests of the government and, and the Russian military who were controlling that uh, parts of the area, that they were asking the UN team repeatedly to go into Khan Shehun and, and collect samples for themselves and see uh, the victims uh, and, and whatnot. And, and the team simply refused to go. The funny thing was the area was controlled by the rebels who wanted to uh, accuse the government of using the chemical weapons. So they would have provided all the facilities to the UN team should they have decided to go in to that area to collect evidence, but they didn't. They stayed outside and these people collected samples from whatever and took them to Turkey. And so there was chain of custody was a complete joke because there was no such thing. The uh, samples were collected in Kanshehun by these people, the, the opposition insurgents, and taken to Turkey when they were supposedly tested by um, by the UN team. And then, on the basis of this very flimsy evidence, they blamed the government, which was beyond their mandate. And and uh, and, and just to rewind on, on Ghouta in August 2013. The, the reason there was a UN team on the ground was to investigate, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, re the reason they were there, when this chemical attack took place on August 21st, there was a UN team just a few miles from the site wanting to go investigate. I believe it was to investigate allegations of the rebels. Yes. Uh, uh, so, and then, as if by magic, a massive sarin attack takes place, blamed on the government, that right. kind of clouds the original uh, story of why they came in the first place. And, and in Khan Shehun, uh, before a UN team was able to be dispatched, or as they were there, uh, a cruise missile strike is launched by, by the U.S., uh, the U.K., and France, and that of, you know, clouds the, uh, the issue under another layer of a new issue, which is uh, intervention. And the same uh, in Duma, uh, just as the UN team is is there, the OPCW is there on the ground, uh, a, a, a cruise missile strike takes place uh, before they're able to get in and investigate. So I see a familiar pattern of interventions happening here uh, that really are prohibiting uh, a proper investigation. And one has to probably ask the question, is there not a motive uh, for some parties to not have a proper investigation and which parties, uh, which motives you know, w would be from w from which parties, and it seems pretty obvious to Brata that it probably uh, is is the 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 so-called rebel side that would have the motive to prohibit a proper investigation on all three of these instances. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And the funny, also the I mean, the motivation of the Western powers that were trying to intervene. That on the one hand, they were you know. And they were screaming for UN investigations. And at the same time, as you correctly point out, then while the inspectors are waiting to go in or whatever, 
that they are launching cruise missile strikes. So they had little regard for actually, I mean, it so happens that the UN was um, um, uh, uh, compromised, but uh, even if you uh, take a look, uh, um, uh, think about the, how the Western powers behaved regarding the UN, they didn't care what the UN said. In fact, John Kerry, he was then the uh, um, Secretary of State uh, of the United States, when the Guta happened, he basically said, and I, I don't have a direct reference, but I distinctly remember reading it, that he was basically saying at the time, we know everything what happened. We don't need any investigation because the UN team was you know, held up because of safety reasons, etc. And then they waited for four days, put out the report, the interim report. Half of it was taken from U.S. intelligence agencies. And so the little regard and, and the same thing, as you can see, the, what has happened to the Duma report. This is the first time, interestingly enough, the UN team actually did a proper investigation. The area in Duma, after uh, the jihadists were kicked out, came under the control of the Russian military, not the Syrian military, Russian military. And the UN team that went into Duma spent 10 days not three days, four days, 10 days in Duma, making multiple visits to multiple uh, places of their choice. Because in the other two reports, first of all, in, in Khan Shehun, they didn't go in. In Ghouta, in 2013, they went in. But in fine print, they also said that they were always guided where they could go, what samples they could collect by the by the so-called insurgents. So in Duma, for the first time, they were able to carry out, I think, a proper investigation. And in their report, the interim report in Duma, they do not say that the Russian military put any kind of restrictions on their movements. And lo and behold, with chain of custody maintained and 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 and, and samples collected properly, they found nothing. Well, that's uh, that's quite a result. So yes, so yeah. I have to, I have to ask Subrata if if that chain of custody and that amount of time to do a proper investigation was allowed in Kanchahun in April 2017 and also in Eastern Ghouta in uh, August of 2013, is it possible? And I I I'm, I speculate that the results uh, would be very similar uh, because I see the conditions as being very similar in all three cases and i see the actors and the motive and the opportunity as being very similar so i assume that if the investigative team were allowed the same which they were allowed in duma that you would get probably the same results i'm, I'm i know that speculation subrata but uh would that be a fair hypothesis to proceed on obviously with more investigation but you know is it does would that make sense in terms of a hypothesis yeah, no, I think that that uh, I mean, I, I certainly agree with that, and that, uh, and I think that the Duma findings are are findings of um, no sarin, no banned elements under the Chemical Weapons Convention <clears throat> uh, show because that the three main attacks that took place in Syria had all followed the same script as far as the kind of attack, the victims, the, the media blast, and all this stuff. So, and, and in, in, the, in the first two cases, the investigations were botched. In the third case, the investigation wasn't. So there is very strong 
uh, uh, I wouldn't say evidence, but certainly, uh, I mean, they could argue that, you know, lack of evidence is not evidence, but lack of substantive evidence certainly points to the fact that something like what happened in Duma happened in those two cases, and we got a very different story because the investigations were not right. Yeah, I think I think so. And what what does that tell us? That well, I think they made a mistake in uh, both the case of Khan Shahoon uh, and Guta in twenty thirteen. In in how not a mistake, or maybe they just didn't have the ability to get in. I certainly wouldn't send a team in to Idlib uh, in under those conditions or Eastern Ghouta as well. So, but besides that, it's very limited. But let's get back as well to the death count, Subrata. That that initial figure of fourteen hundred. I don't know if you had followed the story at the time to see that that was validated by Medicine Sans Frontieres, is one of the organizations that kind of put their stamp on. The, roughly the, the this this big death count uh and and we find out also that msf didn't have or doctors without borders as they're called in english didn't doesn't actually they said later they didn't have facilities in syria they only supported or msf quote supported uh facilities but they did i believe in that time early on had some people on the ground i i te- I, I sort of remember this but that was given that stamp by that ngo which is internationally recognized and respected helped i think to validate that original death figure that you quoted there or around that roughly approximately um and and it really was really never questioned at all after that uh and i'm 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 shocked that the 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 un team you know weren't allowed to see uh or to verify the the deceased because how can you determine what happened if you don't know where the victims are or how many victims there were. Uh, go ahead, Subrat. No, I, 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 absolutely. I, 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 I wasn't aware, actually, of how MS, uh, MSF uh, validated the death toll. Uh, uh, it's a large number of people uh, were, uh, died, 1,400. That number didn't change, and, and because there was... Um, uh, no uh, evidence to the contrary that they, they didn't, but there was no real supporting evidence of in the Islamic world. You have immediate funerals, uh, so they, there would be videos of large number of funerals and um, of bodies draped in white uh, cloth and so forth. Nothing of that sort emerged. Um, and then the the morgue uh, uh, statistics, of course, under uh, that type of a situation, the with, with the administration not functioning properly, so one might not see exact data. So it is still a, a completely unanswered uh, question about what really happened in the the magnitude of the of the debacle, and uh, and I just hope that. Um, uh, uh, this, the Syrian government, uh, of course, they are so preoccupied with rebuilding this totally devastated country that there is some effort to look into uh, this issue. And I and I wouldn't take uh, the MSF uh, 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 body count to the bank, so to speak. Yeah, and and I think um, I think it is an important. I mean, if you it. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that the bar of justice 
for an international incident of this magnitude with the ramifications are countries declaring war on each other, you know, airstrikes being launched, missiles being fired uh, on a country, Congress going and asking for a declaration of war, parliament meeting, decide, I mean, the, the ramifications are huge. Uh, it, it, but the bar of justice for these types of crimes in, in the international sphere, uh, and maybe this is because it's politicized, but it is so low in terms of the burden of proof. If you go to a domestic crime or in a felony trial or even a parking ticket in the U.S. or Europe, it's much higher, the burden of uh, proof. You know, then, so I I, I'm, I'm, this is the part Subrata that it, uh, many of us have a hard time uh, comprehending that one would launch war on such a spur- spurious case. This is disturbing. Uh, this is the hardest thing that I find, but I, I don't see a lot of media commentators, you know, bringing that point up, but I think it's significant, you know, especially in the, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you are absolutely right. I mean, that is why there is no media commentary virtually non-existent on the report on Duma because it, it found no chemical weapons, a presence there, which, uh, there has been, no news whatsoever. I found a reference to that when it first happened from a Pakistani newspaper, Dawn. And uh, the, the New York Times, I don't think, uh, maybe they have reported since then, but it just completes radio silence on, uh, on, on, on this tremendous finding that here we are, ha- we have been uh, accusing Assad of this heinous crime of using chemical weapons on its old people, and now we find it didn't happen, at least in Ghouta. So shouldn't it, re- shouldn't it demand that we have a major debate on what happened all these years? Yeah, because it shapes it shapes po- uh, U.S. policy towards Syria. It, it shapes U.K., French policy towards Syria, European policy, uh, Arab League countries as well, Turkey. Yes. Uh, right. So it is it, these are this is really important uh, foundational points that, that the story needs to be clarified. Uh, and and so for this reason, I, I, I believe uh, that's probably what motivates your research uh, Subrata and, and, and many others who have been researching this. Um, I, it's just so easy for the mainstream media and for politicians now to look to uh, their own creations, their own little astroturf organizations like Bellingcat, for instance, uh, has all the answers right out of the gates and there's no need, no more inquiries needed. Bellingcat has solved the mystery uh, as as they've done at every <laughs> at every juncture for every major crime that's uh, implicated the Syrian government or the Russian government, you can rely on Bellingcat there f- to, within minutes to provide you just by a little surfing on the internet. Uh, yeah. Figure it all out. So, um, and I think that's what happened with Guta, uh, or at least, or at least uh, you know, with Khan and the others. Uh, Bell- the, these organizations that are funded in some cases by NATO, their NATO-linked funding with Bellingcat support by the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council is very much uh, uh, you know, has NATO and other defense contractors uh, supporting it. So we do see there's there is a conflict of interest there uh, with regards to the sources of funding as to what sort of outcome they're looking for in any investigation. That's kind of obvious. But, uh, you know, so it, these aren't independent um, 
investigations that are being presented by by the U.S. Uh, and British and European establishments with regards to these cases, hardly so. Uh, but but yeah, so your your work uh, we've linked to your to your article, which is uh, published on Medium. That's up on the show page now. Thank you. Uh, and uh, also, I'll try to also import a link as well to your previous report, uh, which you published uh, before. If if we have one minute, Patrick, I would like to just make one other point. Sure. Uh, and that is that as far as shaping the public opinion on the chemical weapons in Syria, one shouldn't forget this incredible hysteria that's going on in the United States and in Britain against Russia. And uh, so as we move on from no finding in Duma, the, the press doesn't care about that. The press goes to Salisbury and talks about Novichok. And, uh, and the U.S., of course, tr- a, a tremendous anti-Russian campaign has been going on since the last election. And so uh, as far as chemical weapons, it was a very easy sort of slam dunk, so to speak, for them to use the Russian menace and how Russia has been protecting Syria and Russia has been guiding and uh, in this in this chemical weapons. So the public easily believed all these stories given the animus towards Russia Russia that exists in the mainstream media and the so-called the ruling class in the United States. So, so Mike, Subrat has made an important point there in that if you build up this chemical weapons timeline, you have Russia supporting Syria in, in the war in that country, that conflict, and then you have established, you know, so Syria has been implicated so Russia, by extension, is implicated because they're supporting Syria, the Syrian government, and it does set the stage, doesn't it, nicely for the uh, the Novichok yes. uh, uh, narrative. It's it's, it's built it up uh, nicely, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, but um, yes, go ahead. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and and uh, <laughs> and not just that. It's, it's you know you you look through the the mainstream press in the UK. I, I'm not looking at the US press quite so much, but they're alongside the big uh, stories that directly attribute uh, things like Novichok to the Russians. There are a whole bunch of other smaller, apparently irrelevant little stories, silly little stories. That are that are anti-Russian in other ways, and are just all adding to this this notion that Russia is the great enemy that that, that we're building up to, uh, and uh, so you know, where where are we going to end with this? I, I don't I, I I hate to speculate, but I, <laughs> I I don't I don't want to speculate where we're get, where that ending is going to go. But I can say with a very high, and to, to to borrow a term from the U.S. intelligence community, I can say with a very high degree of certainty uh, that this is taking us along an identical path of fifty years of the Cold War uh, in terms of creating some polarization. Uh, in creating, uh, you know, polarity between Russia and the West in terms of uh, geopolitical rivalry and a security issue, an arms race, a cyber arms race, etc. So I do see the repeating of this process. Uh, I think that's pretty self-evident, uh, especially in the last two years. And, so- and that is a great danger because the United States is now on a path as it has always been one way or another, to try to 
uh, acquire um, some form of nuclear supremacy. So they never believed in this parody uh, that, that gives stability. So they have now embarked on a $1 trillion modernization of their nuclear arsenal. $1 trillion. In next 30 years, we'll be sp spending $30 billion plus a year in modernizing our, our, our weapons and the nuclear weapons complex. And then at that while they're doing that, they're blaming Russia as the biggest enemy, but the Russian military budget is one-tenth of the U.S. military budget. In fact, Putin had cut military budget this, this year, but that's of little value to the American mainstream pre press, that this is not a country that is, that is building up its military, its arsenal to... Uh, for some imperial uh, ambitions. Of course, it has to defend itself, and it has the wherewithal in terms of technology to do that. But people here just think that the Russian bear is so big. It ain't. It is a very small um, um, uh, country with technology, etc. But uh, it's not the Soviet Union, but it is being attacked as such. And um, despite all the efforts by the Russian government to try to normalize relation, calm things down, it's because it is such a uh, um, uh, easy whipping boy to whip up hysteria in this country. Yeah. Now, and, and just to underline what Subrata is correct, uh, the Russian defense budget is approximately uh, one tenth of of the U.S. Uh, defense budget. One tenth. Yes. Uh, yeah, and if you combine China's budget, Russia's budget, and the next 16 countries, right. uh, they will still be, uh, le I believe, less than half or around half of the uh, U.S. total defense budget. Uh, you can argue about the nuance of those figures, but it's generally correct. Uh, so in terms of uh, what we're talking about, putting things in perspective, I think it's yeah. important to, to note that Russia's GDP is very similar to Spain's. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's uh, let's keep that in perspective. But uh, unfortunately, the uh, the Russian menace is uh, on the front pages. We'll, we'll talk about that after the next uh, break. But uh, we want to thank you, and we, I'd love to have a conversation with you about this uh, a little further. I mean, the strategic uh, implications of a nuclear arms race to brought yeah. That's a conversation I would love to have. Uh, and we can analyze Ronald Reagan's administration going and going forward and seeing how that's developed and what's what's viable and what's not viable. I would love to have that conversation in the future with you. Um, so we can we can maybe pencil that in because that's an interesting one that needs to happen. But Subrata Gushroy, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us this week. And uh, we'll keep an eye out for your work and we'll definitely be uh, letting our readers know about what you're doing uh, in the in the future. Thank you very much. My pleasure. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Subrata Gushroy. He's a research affiliate at MIT and also professor at Tokyo Tech, sharing his findings with us here on the Sunday Wire. And uh, wow, this is uh, this is a, this is a topic that's not going to go away uh, anytime soon. There's so much more to discover, and we'll be keeping an eye on that. We're going to take a short commercial break. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. We'll be right back. And Mike, we're, we're going to crack into. Let's find out what the what the, the rapid reaction force is doing about the Russian menace after these messages. Stay right there.
Let me talk to him. Summer in the city and it's hot outside. Where the goons got no pity and they out to ride. You could close your eyes, but you're not gonna get rid of them. Hope for your dreams, but the bullets they can riddle them. So let me riddle them. The pieces to the puzzles on the tip of my tongue. So they wanna keep me muzzled. Drinks is getting guzzled. Lives is getting lost. There's no real currency to calculate the cost. Yeah.